incredible apostasy. God says, but man says, part two. In the great closing battle between truth and error, Satan speaks to us through his subjects, contradicting what God has revealed as truth through divine inspiration. Let me give you a few examples. Creation. God says, in six days, God made heaven and earth. Exodus 20, 11. But man says, it took millions and millions of years. The Sabbath. God says, the seventh day is the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Exodus 20, 8 to 11. But man says, keep holy the first day, Sunday. Baptism. God says, immerse, buried with him by baptism. Colossians 2, 12. But man says, sprinkle. Sin. God says, go and sin no more. John 8, 11. But man says, sin till Jesus comes. The atonement. God says, Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Romans 4, 24. On the cross, Jesus made a sacrifice atonement by paying the ransom for our sins. And now he is in heaven making the final atonement as a redeemer for cleansing and justification. But man says Christ made the final atonement on the cross for salvation and nothing more is needed. All you have to do to be saved is to believe. Let us pause here to invite the Holy Spirit to clearly reveal what God says about the atonement which Christ made on Calvary and the atonement he is now making in heaven. Please bow your head. Our Father which art in heaven, we have been instructed in thy holy word that when the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. So we plead, please send us thy Holy Spirit that we may fully understand the atonement of Christ which he made on the cross and the final atonement he is now making in heaven for us. This we ask in his holy name. Amen. We will now clarify that there are two atonements essential for complete salvation. The atonement made on the cross provided the ransom for our sins and imputes to us a title to heaven. And in addition, there is the final atonement, which is now being made in heaven's sanctuary 
which imparts Christ's righteousness, giving us a fitness to live in heaven. Inspiration clearly designates the importance of these two atonements. I quote, The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death he began that work which, after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. The Great Controversy, page 489. Let us first discuss the atonement of the cross that was so beautifully prefigured in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. When an individual sinned and found himself faced with the penalty of death, for the scripture says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, God, in his great love, provided a way of escape. The sinner was to bring a lamb to be offered for his sins on the altar of sacrifice located just outside the entrance to the sanctuary. It was here that he must place his hands upon the head of the lamb and confess his sins, thus figuratively transferring his sin to the lamb. When this had been done, he must slay the lamb by his own hands as the priest catches the blood in a bowl. When the priest, then the priest would place the slain lamb on the altar of sacrifice to be consumed. The sinner could now rejoice for an atonement had been made by which his sins had been placed on the lamb which died in his place. But what of the blood which had been caught in the bowl? What was its purpose? We will turn to God's word where it reveals that this blood was needed for a final atonement to be made within the sanctuary for cleansing and justification. We read of this in Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. This blood of the victim was taken within the sanctuary and sprinkled on the horn of the altar before the veil. It contained the life of the flesh in the blood, the record of the individual's sins, which was now transferred to the sanctuary. A final atonement was made only for individuals who met the requirements, making it possible for the high priest to take such sin records out of the sanctuary and placing them on the head of a male goat called 
the scapegoat. This animal was then led out into the wilderness to die. Those individuals who did not comply with the requirements of this final atonement were cut off from the congregation without hope. You can now understand the importance of this atonement for complete salvation. How could God's church leadership dare to alter and destroy the divine doctrine of a final atonement? What caused these men of the General Conference to succumb to the demands of the evangelicals? I will give you the answer. For 25 years, our leadership had been fraternizing with the evangelicals in the schools of Babylon. Naturally, they now wanted to be accepted by them. Up to this point of time, we had been considered to be a cult because of our belief regarding the nature of Christ. For we had consistently taught that when Jesus came to earth, he would take the place of fallen Adam. But when the evangelicals studied our doctrine of the atonement, this also became the major problem. Dr. Barnhouse and Walter Martin of the evangelicals called our sanctuary doctrine stale, flat, and unprofitable. They declared we positively could not be called a Christian church, for we were only an occult. Perhaps this epitaph was what stung the brethren into yielding God's truth by compromising. The following comparison between what man says and what God says will clarify. Consider this question. Was the atonement that forgives, cleanses, and blots out all sin and justifies, was this atonement made on the cross? Man says, and I'm reading the official document concerning the atonement by our ministerial department of the General Conference. Note what these liberals are now teaching. I quote, the sacrificial act on the cross is a complete and final atonement for man's sins. That's taken from the Seventh-day Adventist Ministry magazine, February 1957. And they have never renounced this position to this day. These men continue to teach and I'm quoting, when therefore one hears an Adventist say or read in Adventist literature, even in the writings of Ellen G. White, that Christ is making an atonement now, it should be understood that we mean simply that Christ is now making an application of the benefits of the sacrificial atonement he made on the cross. Question on doctrines, page 354-355. Now, isn't that clever? How dare these liberals try to change 
even the writings of Ellen White by not believing what she wrote, but to insist that she meant something else. Here, they openly question the spirit of prophecy. But now God says through inspiration, and I'm quoting, Jesus, our great high priest, officiates for us in the presence of God, offering in our behalf his shed blood. The Youth Instructor, April 10, 1903. And I quote again, In the typical system, which was a shadow of the sacrifice and priesthood of Christ, the cleansing of the sanctuary was the last service performed by the high priest in the yearly round of ministration. It was the closing work of the atonement, a removal or putting away of sin from Israel. It prefigured the closing work in the ministration of our high priest in heaven in removing or blotting out of the sins of his people, which are registered in the heavenly records. This service involves a work of investigation, a work of judgment, and it immediately precedes the coming of Christ in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. For when he comes, every case has been decided. Jesus says, My reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Revelation 22:12. It is this work of judgment, immediately preceding the second advent, that is announced in the first angel's message of Revelation 14:7. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. The Great Controversy, page 352. So, we have discovered the truth. The atonement made at the cross did not include forgiveness, cleansing, and the blotting out of sin, and justification. The amazing atonement of the cross of sacrifice was not final, so that nothing more was needed. It provided only the required ransom. This is why inspiration teaches that the blood of Christ is now being presented to the Father by our High Priest, Jesus Christ, who is making the final atonement for all who successfully meet the requirements of the investigative judgment, enabling them to be clothed with the wedding garments of Christ's righteousness. Now, one more question. Is the investigative judgment a part of the atonement made at the cross? You will be surprised to learn that because our liberal leadership had accepted the evangelical doctrine of atonement, which teaches the atonement on the cross was final and nothing more is needed for salvation, these leaders now discovered they had a problem. 
what to do with the Bible doctrine of the investigative judgment. And would you believe it? They decided to attach the investigative judgment to the atonement made at the cross. I quote what these men say. Their study of Bible teaching on the sanctuary revealed that in 1844 Christ came to the Ancient of Days and began the final phase of his high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. This ministry was the antitype of the Day of Atonement, a cleansing of the sanctuary that Daniel 7 depicts as the pre-advent investigative judgment. That's taken from the Seventh-day Adventist Believe, page 324. Now, unless you know your Bible and the spirit of prophecy, you can be easily misled by these liberals, for you have their statements that they have accepted the false error that a final atonement was made on the cross, that nothing more was needed. So, they must now attach the investigative judgment with that which took place on the cross. And such teaching of men is absolutely false. You may read Daniel 7 a thousand times, but it does not say the pre-advent judgment took place at the cross. What man says is false doctrine. Now for the truth, God says, and I'm quoting, attended by heavenly angels, our great high priest, enters the Holy of Holies and there appears in the presence of God to engage in the last acts, notice that's plural, of his ministration in behalf of man. Why? To perform the work of investigative judgment and to make an atonement for all who are shown to be entitled to its benefits. The Great Controversy, page 480. Beloved, there is nothing in the investigative judgment of an atonement work. So this did not take place at the cross. How sad that prominent leadership of the General Conference would join with Babylon to teach that forgiveness, cleansing, and the blotting out of sins and justification took place at the atonement of the cross. By accepting this false doctrine, they have literally destroyed, and I quote, God's way within the sanctuary of finally separating the records of sin from the sinners. They have actually done away with the righteousness of Christ provided by our high priest ministry in heaven to cover the repentant sinner with the robes, the wedding robes. And this is incredible apostasy. Amazingly, this is exactly what inspiration declared would happen. I quote, The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. 
the fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. Selected Messages 1, page 204. There is one more witness I feel impressed to present to you. Elder M. L. Andreasen wrote the following when he discovered what the liberals had done to God's sanctuary doctrine. Keep in mind that he was a professor in our Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary in the years in which this incredible apostasy took place. I will now read his letter word for word. I'm quoting. The serious student of the atonement is likely to be perplexed when he consults the spirit of prophecy to find two sets of apparently contradictory statements in regard to the atonement. He will find that when Christ offered himself on the cross, a perfect atonement was made for the sins of the people. Signs of the Times, June 28, 1899. He will find that the Father bowed before the cross in recognition of its perfection. It is enough, he said. The atonement is complete. Review and Herald, September 24, 1901. But he will find this. At the conclusion of the 2300 days in 1844, Christ entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to perform the closing work of atonement. The Great Controversy, page 422. We also read that sins will, quote, stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement in 1844. Patriarchs and Prophets, 357. It is also stated that in the final atonement, the sins of the truly penitent are to be blotted from the records of heaven. Bidem, 358. Jesus entered the most holy of the heavenly at the end of the 2300 days of Daniel 8 in 1844 to make a final atonement. Early Writings 253. The first set of statements says that the atonement was made on the cross. The other says that the final atonement was made 1800 years later. I have found seven statements that the atonement was made on the cross. I have 22 statements that the final atonement was made in heaven. So both of these figures are doubtless incomplete. It is evident that one cannot accept one set of statements and reject the other if they wish to arrive at truth. The question, therefore, is how can these statements be harmonized? In the February number of the ministry, 1957, the statement appears that the sacrificial act 
of the cross was a complete, perfect, and final atonement. This was a distinct contradiction to Mrs. White's pronouncement that the final atonement began in 1844. I found that this was not a misprint, but an unofficial and approved statement. If we still hold the spirit of prophecy as having authority, we have two contradictory beliefs. The final atonement was made at the cross. The final atonement began in 1844. I have listened to several discussions of the meaning of the Hebrew word kapar, which is the word used in the original for atonement, but have received little help. The best definite definition I have found is a short explanatory phrase in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 358, which simply states that the atonement, quote, this great work of atonement, or blotting out of sins, was represented by the services of the Day of Atonement. This definition is in harmony with Leviticus 16.30, which says, For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Atonement is here equated with being clean from all your sins. As sin was the cause of separation between God and man, the removing of sin would again unite God and man. The definition of atonement as consisting of these words, at one minute, is by some considered obsolete, but it ne nevertheless represents vital truth. Mrs. White thus uses it. She says, Unless they accept the atonement provided for them in the remedial sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our atonement at one mint with God in heavenly places, page 146. God's plan is that in the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Ephesians 1.10. When this is done, the family of heaven and the family of earth are one. The Desire of Ages 8.35. Then one pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation, the great controversy, 678. At last, the atonement is complete. Much confusion in regard to the atonement arises from a neglect to recognize the two divisions of the atonement. Note what is said of John the Baptist. He did not distinguish clearly the two phases of Christ's work as a suffering sacrifice and a conquering king. The Desire of Ages 136, 137. 
The book Question on Doctrines makes the same mistake. It does not distinguish clearly. In fact, it does not distinguish at all. It does not seem to know of the two phases. Hence, the confusion. Please turn the tape over. The first phase of Christ's atonement was of a suffering sacrifice. This began before the, fir before the world was and included the incarnation, Christ's life on earth, the temptation in the wilderness, Gethsemane, and Golgotha, and ended when God's voice called Christ from the stony prison house of death. Isaiah 53 is a vivid picture of this. Satan had overcome Adam in the Garden of Eden, and in a short time nearly the whole world had come under his sway. At the time of Noah, there were only eight souls who entered the ark. Satan claimed to be the prince of this world, and no one had challenged him. But God did not recognize Satan's claim to domination, and when Christ came to the earth, the Father gave the world into the hands of the Son, that through his mediatorial work he may completely vindicate the holiness and the binding claims of every precept of divine law. Bible Echo, January 1887. This was a challenge to Satan's claim, and thus began in earnest the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Quote, the great work of redemption could be carried out only by the Redeemer taking the place of a fallen Adam. With the sins of the world laid upon him, he would go over the ground where Adam stumbled. Review and Herald, February 24, 1874. Jesus volunteered to meet the highest claims of the law. Abidum, September 2, 1890. By pledging his life, Christ has made himself responsible for every man and woman on the earth. Review and Herald, February 27, 1900. As Satan claimed ownership of this earth, it was necessary for Christ to overcome Satan before he could take possession of his kingdom. Satan knew this, and hence made an attempt to kill Christ as soon as he was born. The first real encounter between Christ and Satan took place in the wilderness. After forty days of fasting, Christ was weak and emaciated at death's door. At this time, Satan made his attack, but Christ resisted and Satan was compelled to retire, defeated. But he did not give up. Throughout Christ's ministry, Satan dogged his footsteps and made every moment a hard battle. The climax of Christ's struggle with Satan came in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hitherto, 
Christ had been upheld by the knowledge of the approval of the Father. But now he was overpowered by the terrible fear that God was removing his presence from him. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, page 95. If God should forsake him, could he still resist Satan and die rather than yield? Quote, Three times his humanity shrank from the last crowning sacrifice. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Spirit of Prophecy 3, page 99. As the Father's presence was withdrawn, they saw him sorrowful with a bitterness of sorrow exceeding that of the last great struggle with death. Desire of Ages 759. Having made the decision, he fell dying to the ground, but with his last ounce of strength, he murmured, If this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. A heavenly peace rested upon his blood-stained face. He had borne that which no human being could ever bear. He had tasted the sufferings of death for every man. Desire of Ages 693 and 4. In his death, he was victor. When Christ said, It is finished, God responded, It is finished. The human race shall have another trial. The redemption price was paid and Satan fell like lightning from heaven. Manuscript Release, Volume 12, 409. As the Father beheld the cross, he was satisfied. He said, It is enough. The offering is complete. It was necessary, however, that there should be given the world a stern manifestation of the wrath of God. So, in the grave, Christ was the captive of divine justice. Signs of the Times, November 15, 1899. It must be abundantly attested that Christ's death was real. So he must remain in the grave the allotted period of time. Review and Herald. April 26, 1898. When the time was expired, a messenger was sent to relieve the Son of God from the debt for which he had made full atonement. The youth instructor, May 2, 1901. In the intercessory prayer of Jesus with his Father, he claimed that he had fulfilled the conditions which made it obligatory upon the Father to fulfill his part of the contract made in heaven with regard to fallen man. He prayed, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. That is, he had wrought out a righteous character on earth as an example for men to follow. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, 260. The contract between the Father and the Son 
made in heaven included the following. One, the Son was to work out a righteous character on earth as an example for man to follow. Two, not only was Christ to work out such a character, but he was to demonstrate that man also could do this. And thus man would become more precious than fine gold, even a man than a golden wedge of Ophir. Three, if Christ thus could present man as a new creature in Christ Jesus, then God was to receive repentant and obedient men and would love them even as he loved his Son. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, 260, Isaiah 13, 12, The Desire of Ages, 790. Christ had fulfilled one phase of his priesthood by dying on the cross for a fallen race. He is now fulfilling another phase by pleading before the Father the case of the repenting, believing sinner, presenting to God the offering of his people. Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, 929. In his incarnation, he had reached the prescribed limit as a sacrifice, but not as a redeemer. Manuscript Release, Volume 12, page 409. On Golgotha, he was the victim, the sacrifice. That was as far as he could go as a sacrifice. But now, his work as a redeemer began. When Christ cried, it is finished, God's unseen hand rent the strong fabric composing the veil of the temple from top to bottom. The way into the holiest of all was made manifest about him. With the cross, the first phase of Christ's work as the suffering sacrifice ended. He had gone the prescribed limit as a sacrifice. He had finished his work thus far. And now, with the Father's approval of the sacrifice, he was empowered to be the Savior of mankind. At the ensuing coronation, forty days later, he was given all power in heaven and earth and officially installed as the high priest. After his ascension, our Savior began his work as our high priest in harmony with a typical service. He began his ministration in the holy place and at the termination of the prophetic days in 1844, he entered the most holy to perform the last division of his solemn work to cleanse the sanctuary. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, 256 and 266. On the same page, Sister White repeats, apparently for emphasis, 
At the termination of the 2300 days in 1844, Christ then entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in the presence of God to perform the closing work of atonement, preparatory to his coming. The reader cannot fail to note how clearly and emphatically this is stated. John the Baptist did not distinguish clearly the two phases of Christ's work as a suffering sacrifice and a conquering king, the Desire of Ages 136. Our theologians are making the same mistake today and are inexcusable. They have light which John did not have. In studying this part of the atonement, we are entering a field that is distinctly Adventist and in which we differ from all other denominations. This is our unique contribution to religion and theology, that which has made us a separate people and has given us character and power to do our work. Councils to Editors and Writers, page 54. In the same place, she warns us against making, quote, void the truths of the atonement and destroying our confidence in the doctrines which we have held sacred since the third angel's message was first given. That's the end of Professor Andreasen's letter. Beloved, this is vital counsel and written for this very time when efforts are being made by some among us to have others believe that we are like the churches about us, an evangelical body and not a sect. Paul in his day had the same heresy to meet. He was accused of being a pestilent fellow, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, Acts 24, 5. In his answer before Felix, Paul confessed that after the way which they called heresy or sect, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, Acts 24, 14. In those days, men spoke sneeringly of the true church as a sect, as men do now. Paul was not disturbed by this. We have no record that he attempted to have the church of the living God recognized as an evangelical body by men who trampled the law of God in the dust. On the contrary, whatever they might call him and his sect, he confessed that he believed all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Verse 14. Beloved, because of what our leaders have done in changing our sanctuary doctrine, they have opened the door to other satanic doctrines. I'll mention a few. Since we now teach the false doctrine that the atonement was final at the cross, 
Jesus having done all that is needed, we no longer need to worry about sin. He took care of it on Calvary. So, you can sin till Jesus comes. And, since we now teach the false doctrine that salvation was totally completed at the cross, why do we need a sanctuary in heaven? No need to believe that Jesus is our high priest now making an atonement as our Redeemer. And consider this false teaching, that the gift of prophecy is no longer to be taught as essential to our knowledge for doctrine. Oh yes, it's good motherly advice. Let's abandon it altogether and worship in our church as they do in the churches of Babylon with celebration, drums, Christian rock music, clapping in drama entertainment, and the raising of hands, which is used by the churches of Babylon to invite Satan's spiritualism to bestow upon them the ability to speak with unknown tongues. Friend, now you know how and why Apostasy is daily growing within our church today. Beloved, will you join me with God's help to determine to hold fast to the pillars of faith that God has bestowed upon his church that we may be counted as God's remnant? Let us pray. Thank thee, Father, for sending thy Holy Spirit that we may know the truth. For we ask in thy Son's name. Amen. Oh,